You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Ambassadors, ladies, uh, gentlemen, friends, colleagues, uh, welcome to the Edmund uh, Burke Theatre here in Trinity College Dublin. And a particular welcome to everybody who's joining us online as well, those of you who are here on a rather dreary evening. So it's fantastic just to see uh, uh, the auditorium packed. Uh, and I'd take great pleasure in uh, welcoming you to the first of our uh, Behind the Headlines discussions for the academic year 2019-2020. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is an internationally reputed research uh, institute focusing on advancing collaborative research in the arts and humanities. Um, I'm going to say just a couple of words about the Trinity Longroom Hub uh, before we turn to uh, the proceedings this evening, because basically we do three things in the Trinity Longroom Hub, and that's what the building looks like. It's literally above us. Uh, the first thing we do is promote the excellence uh, of the arts and humanities here at Trinity, and that means disciplines, uh, history, English, the creative arts, religion, uh, they're just a few of the disciplines that comprise the arts and humanities. Um, many of our graduates this evening, in fact all of our graduates uh, this evening, come from an arts and humanities uh, background. Uh, all of our speakers, I beg your pardon, are graduates from an arts and humanities background. Um, the second thing we do in the hub is we bring the humanities together with the sciences, because we believe that where the disciplines collide, uh, the magic happens. We also believe that some of the world's great challenges can only be solved by collaboration across uh, disciplines. So we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about this and interrogating the great societal challenges from an inter and multidisciplinary uh, perspective. The third thing we do is public humanities. And this is a great example uh, of um, our uh, public humanities initiatives where we want to bring the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest possible uh, audiences. Uh, the fact that so many of you are here this evening, we're really delighted that you are on that journey uh, with us. So thank you for coming. I also just want to thank um, uh, the John Pollard Foundation and especially Stephen Vernon. It's lovely that you're with us this evening, sir, uh, Stephen, because actually your funding uh, makes this Behind the Headlines series possible and we're extremely uh, grateful uh, to you. So to tonight's discussion, the future of Ireland and its borders. Speaking as somebody who grew up in Belfast during the Troubles, with an 84-year-old mother who lives uh, in South Armagh and commutes to Donegal, with a son living in London, I can safely say I still wish that Brexit won't happen. Um, however, here we are, uh, now fast approaching the latest deadline of the 31st of October, and we're preparing for the worst case scenario, a no deal Brexit. Of course, fears around a hard border um, being reinstated have resurrected old tensions. However, this time we hope 
that we can also imagine new possibilities and new futures in a post-Brexit Ireland. And we hope tonight to bring nuance to that um, uh, discussion with the aid of a, a stellar panel of speakers, and I'll introduce them in a moment. I do, however, want to say that over the course um, of the next academic year, the Trinity Long Room Hub will be celebrating its 10th anniversary, its 10th birthday. And the broad theme of the future of Ireland is something that we're going to be coming back to in virtually uh, all of our signature uh, events. Because we want to reflect on the major changes that have occurred in Ireland and indeed the world over the past 10 years. And we want to imagine how the arts and humanities can shape discussions on where we're going over the coming uh, uh, decades. Tonight, we have an absolutely uh, uh, stellar panel of speakers for you. And I'm going to introduce them very briefly in the order in which they'll speak. So our first speaker tonight is Rory Montgomery, who read history here at Trinity. He recently retired from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, having served most recently as Second Secretary General with responsibility for EU issues. This meant that Rory was at the epicentre of discussions around uh, 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 Brexit, very much at the front line. I'm really thrilled that from January, he's also going to be our uh, practitioner, our policy practitioner in residence at the Trinity Long Room Hub, where he's going to have an, uh, uh, the opportunity to explore uh, many of the issues he's going to be talking about this evening. Our second speaker is Etain Tannen, who's Professor of International Peace Studies in Trinity School of Religion. She's become a very prominent commentator on Brexit, on UK-Irish relations, and on cross-border cooperation. Her book, entitled British-Irish Relations in the 21st Century, will be published next year, 2020. And I hope it's a bestseller, Etain. It certainly should be, uh, because she has uh, been a very active contributor uh, to numerous reports about Brexit uh, to both the European Parliament uh, and to uh, both Houses of Parliament in, in Westminster. Our third speaker uh, this evening is David Kenny, who is a Professor of Law at Trinity. His research interests include referendums and the constitutional implications of Brexit for Ireland. Together with Etain and Aaron Doyle, uh, also from the Law School, David will be one of the few uh, key members of a new working group on uh, unification referendums on the island of Ireland, uh, working closely with colleagues in University College London and Queen's University at Belfast. Uh, that was in the news uh, uh, last week, um, and obviously we're absolutely delighted to be part of that conversation, uh, uh, and that David, Oren, uh, 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 and Etain will I think, play a very important and significant role in those conversations. Our final speaker this evening is Jan Carson. Uh, Jan uh, read uh, English at Queen's and then Theology at St Andrews. She's a writer and community arts facilitator based in Belfast. 
and her most recent novel, The Firestarters, which was published in April 2019, won the EU Prize for Literature uh, for Ireland. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, congratulations on that, Jan. She's obviously uh, also published a novel which is called uh, Malcolm Orange Disappears. Now, I have not read it, but I certainly want to with a title like that. Um, I uh, Just before we uh, turn to our first speaker, just a few uh, housekeeping uh, things I want to bring to your attention. The format for this series is as it always is. Each of our speakers has nine minutes. Um, uh, they'll each uh, have their nine minutes and then it'll be over uh, to you uh, for questions and I would ask you to ask your questions quick, I mean briefly, keep it brief and keep it direct. I also though uh, would invite you to put your phone on silent, there was a phone ringing earlier, if you put your phone on silent but do share your thoughts, your photos, your comments on social media by tagging at the TLRH hub and using the hashtag uh, HubMatters. Uh, this talk is being live streamed and then uh, will also be made available uh, through a podcast on our website. So now, if I could invite you, ladies and gentlemen, to join me in welcoming our first uh, speaker, Rory Montgomery. Rory. Well, thank you very much, Jane. It's uh, wonderful to see such a, a large audience here today, uh, including some people with whom I used to work very closely um, in my uh, recently finished career in the Department of Foreign Affairs. So uh, this is a, an enormous topic, obviously. A uh, huge number of questions uh, raise themselves. I think we probably have only scratched the surface when we come to start thinking about the future of Ireland and its borders. But I think it's precisely uh, this kind of event. Uh, and as Jane said, there's now beginning to be a, a, a number of, of academic and, and other initiatives to, to look more carefully at these issues. Um, I, I think it's essential, um, as I say, as we go forward, that the civil society and academia uh, work together in, in a way which as they illuminates issues, uh, which are ultimately, of course, for political and, and then a, a finally a popular uh, decision. Um, so I thought tonight, as a, to start off, I thought it might be helpful just to look, um, or look again, at what the Good Friday Agreement actually says about Irish uh, unity. Uh, in the Good Friday Agreement, um, there is a constitutional issues section, uh, six uh, subparagraphs, and the agreement also included within it the texts of the changed Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution, which were subsequently adopted by referendum in, in May 98, plus uh, the relevant British text of the relevant British legislation, uh, which was contained in the Northern Ireland Act also of 98. Now, three broad themes. I mean, so what does the Good Friday Agreement say? Uh, what does it not say? Uh, and what does it say or suggest about the nature of United Ireland? Uh, and all of these questions point to major issues of process uh, and of substance. Now, I was involved in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, and in fact, I, I you know, in, in particular, or not least on the constitutional text, I think we have to remember that these texts were produced late, under ferocious pressure. Uh, the last days of the negotiations were, frankly, close to chaotic. 
Um, many of the issues which are raised by the text were not in any way the subject of meaningful discussion among the participants before the text was adopted. The main focus of the last week was on the institutions, I mean the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive and North-South institutions, plus decommissioning and prisoner release. So in a way, you know, if you try to sort of subject the text to a really close exegesis, uh, you won't be surprised to find that there are many gaps. The other point I suppose important to make is that when we were doing all this 21 years ago, the question of you know, how a future referendum on, on unity might actually be conducted and what the consequences would be and so forth seemed rather, well, were rather far in the distance um, 21 years ago, as I say. So certainly for a generation at least, um, it, was, it has not been necessary uh, to look in detail at these questions. So what does it say, uh, the Good Friday Agreement? Um, paragraph 1-2, the participants, i.e. the governments and the parties, recognise that it is for the people of the island of Ireland alone, by agreement between the two parts respectively, and without external impediment, to exercise their right of self-determination on the basis of consent, freely and concurrently given north and south to bring about a united Ireland, if that is their wish, accepting that this right must be achieved and exercised with and subject to the agreement and consent of a majority of the people of Northern Ireland. Long sentence. One of my colleagues once said, uh, the great John O'Hean, we were trying to win the Nobel Prize for peace, uh, not for literature. Um, <laughs> and paragraph one, four then, says that if indeed the people of Ireland do exercise their right of self-determination to bring about United Ireland, it would be a binding obligation on both governments to introduce and support in their respective parliaments legislation to give effect to that wish. Now, as I say, this is supplemented then um, in respect to Northern Ireland uh, by the Northern Ireland Act, which I mentioned earlier. That provides that um, if the Secretary of State, um, if at any time it appears likely to the Secretary of State the majority would vote for, an, for United Ireland, then he is obliged to hold one, to hold a referendum. Um, and then that can only happen uh, once uh, every seven years. In other words, if there's one referendum and it doesn't succeed in Northern Ireland, uh, then there can't be another one for seven years on the Friday Agreement. And then just to, to say, I know there have been many people who have said that a 50% plus one uh, you know, majority requirement is potentially extremely destabilizing and dangerous, but that's what the text of the agreement says. It's a majority. A majority is a majority is a majority. I remember a Sinn Féin group raising this point very explicitly with me uh, in the final stages of the negotiations, saying, why don't we say simple majority? And I said, well, look, majority is majority. And all the more so in an contrario argument to the fact that the arrangements for a qualified majority as where in terms of Northern Ireland's assembly are set out elsewhere. And then finally, in terms of our own constitution, I mean, it doesn't explicitly refer to a poll in the Republic, uh, but it does effectively confirm that one must be held because it must be uh, the consent of a majority of the people democratically expressed. And then, it, as I said, it's concurrently, uh, as the text says. So in other words, two referendums have to happen at the same time, as happened in 98 with the Good Friday Agreement and the changes to our constitution. So again, to, to quote David Trimble in another very different context, we have to jump together, north and south. 
Now, what does the agreement not say? Well, and I will just list these questions without going into the implications, which are many. On what basis does the Secretary of State or would the Secretary of State make the assessment that a majority is likely? Opinion polls? The results of elections in Northern Ireland? A vote in the Assembly? Having come to a determination, how much leeway would he have or she have in terms of timing? How quickly would a referendum have to be held? And then, this is a strange absence in the text. Obviously, if two referendums are to be held um, on the same day, north and south, it is, I think, unacceptable that the Northern Ireland Secretary of State alone would be the person who determined the date for referendums in both parts of the island, including in the Republic. So clearly, there would have to be, effectively, a, a consultation with, discussion with, agreement with the Irish government. And what, indeed, if the Irish government feels that the timing maybe is politically not right, irrespective of what the British legislation says? Um, then, of course, there's the whole question of a dialogue with the Assembly and with parties and civil society and, and others about the process. There's a sort of a, a question about, which David can talk about maybe, what would be the nature of a poll in the Republic? Um, we've never had a plebiscit in the Republic. Uh, all our referendums have been on changes to our constitution. But it seems to me that you probably would have to have a plebiscite on the basic question, and then later on a more detailed constitutional revision. But that's one of the main matters for discussion. And then, of course, big, big question. We've all seen with Brexit how uh, dangerous it can be to have a referendum in which nobody actually knows what the result means. But how far, how far could it be made clear in advance what unity would involve? What process would there be? Would there be a forum of parties like the New Ireland Forum? Would there be citizens' assembly or assemblies? How would you, how would you engage with, with, with parties and individuals both north and south? In particular, how would you engage unionists? And in particular, if unionists are going to fight tooth and nail to defeat a referendum on unity, how could they be expected to take part in this discussion about what a possible United Ireland would look like? So ideally, all of these questions would be worked out before a poll, not so likely, perhaps. What happens then after a poll? Again, the agreement doesn't really address these points. Obviously, one very big question, what if the South says no and the North says yes? Unlikely, you may think, but it's just a hypothetical possibility. Now, the governments have a binding obligation to introduce legislation. I said that earlier, it's in the agreement. The Northern Ireland Act, however, speaks of such proposals to give effect to United Ireland as may be agreed between the governments. That's what the British government has to do in Westminster. But again, many, many open questions. What time frame? What process? Yes, the two governments would have to be involved, but obviously it couldn't just be the two governments in practice. It would have to be the assembly or the parties. Um, and what would the end product of those post-referendum negotiations be? A new British-Irish agreement, it seems certain. Again, I would have thought almost certainly a, a, a totally new or a massively changed constitution for an All-Ireland state. Um, and then there are very many other important non-constitutional elements, the basic questions of finance and economics and public services and welfare and health. And of course, what if, again, um, a substantial body don't engage or if consensus can't be reached? Um, and then as a ratification of such agreement. Finally then, just very briefly, I mean, what does the uh, text of the agreement say about the nature of United Ireland? 
Well, I mean, just as a, a sample, because similar language appears in a number of places, it's essentially that there has to be rigorous partiality on behalf of all of the people in the diversity of identities and traditions, and it must respect the principles of full respect for, equality of, civil, political, social, cultural rights, freedom from discrimination, parity of esteem, just and equal treatment for the identity, ethos, and aspirations of both communities. And there are separate, similar language elsewhere. And rather fascinatingly, the Joint Declaration of 1993, in some way a sort of founding document of the process, included a commitment on behalf of the Taoiseach um, that he considers that the lessons of Irish history, and especially of Northern Ireland, show that stability and well-being will not be found under any political system which is refused allegiance or rejected on grounds of identity by a significant minority of those governed by it. Now, that's not a Good Friday Agreement text, but an important part of the context. So all of this suggests that despite the fact of a 50% plus one legal rule, which is there, um, the institutional arrangements in the agreement, which are consensual across community, all of this points to attempts to achieve a broad cross-community sufficient consensus. And also, I would suggest, such a consensus would also be uh, necessary when it comes to the process, both before uh, and after a referendum. And this brings me, of course, to the conclusion that there has to be, there would have to be much thought and extreme care about the process before votes. There would need to be also many, many questions answered about what the process afterwards would be. And it seems to me that in the process before, you have to be able to say what the process after might look like. And of course, the United Ireland, which would eventually emerge, would have to meet the criteria just mentioned. And in a way, only unionists ultimately could judge the adequacy of the elements of key importance to them. So much important as it is for nationalism to work out its own idea of a, of a satisfactory solution for all, ultimately nationalism alone cannot determine uh, these questions. So as I say, the involvement and agreement of both communities would be essential. At the same time, I don't believe one could reinstate what would effectively be a veto. So a long and difficult road ahead of us, uh, one way or another. There are many issues to be sorted out. And we will need patience, analysis, and discussion, and consensus. And I, I hope, as I say, that this will be an early, this will be an early moment in that process. And I hope it's something of crucial importance to everyone on the island, citizens of all backgrounds, uh, and also, of course, people from, from outside Ireland who, who are living here too. So thank you all very much indeed. Thank you to Jane and to the Long Room Hub for inviting me to speak and thank you to Rory who has really helped me already uh, before I speak because my main argument is that in talking about the future of the island and I, I actually focused on the word hope in, in Jane's blurb about this event and it made me focus as well on what do I hope for um, in terms of the island and what I thought was I remember being in foreign affairs and a Chatham House speaker said people who think the 90s are going to come back are wrong in terms of the positive atmosphere not the negative side of the 90s the 90s are over and it made me focus and think and reflect that what I would hope to see would be a return to the spirit and the mood of that atmosphere in the late 
years of the 90s when the peace process was really taking off. And that made me then consider in terms of assessing where are we now and how likely is that to occur. And the conclusion, not surprisingly, is that in terms of a united Ireland, it must be a slow process, it must be a delicate process, and that the road is very long and hard in, I think, foreseeing the stability of the island and managing that stability in a way that's sustainable, given the tensions we've seen recently. So in terms of hopes, then, a return to the spirit of the, suppose, the John Hume vision of the island, of communities not uniting territory as such, but that the essence is to unite people first and to have shared uh, identities and different identities and to live and be happy with those identities. We see with Brexit how quickly things become polarised and how that sort of shared um, sense of community um, has diminished. Within that, then, the emphasis for me in the future of the island, and I think for many of us, is consent and the importance of consent. That whatever happens in terms of whether there's unification or not, it must be by consent. And Rory has emphasised, which is very interesting for me in the Good Friday Agreements negotiation, it seems a bit like Article 50 of, of the um, Lisbon Treaty, that maybe not huge attention was focused on how would a united Ireland occur, so it was 51%. And we see from the Brexit referendum how divisive that kind of outcome is when there is a narrow margin. So consent, in my hope, and I think many people's hopes and expectations for the future of the island is central. And what Seamus Mallon emphasised in his um, autobiography recently is parallel consent. So consent is not just a straight majority, it's a majority in both communities and that they would be happy to see whatever constitutional outcome occurs. For that reason, then, in hopes for the future, um, I think the concept of a border poll and various politicians called for that, not just Sinn Féin. I think Fianna Fáil, though, um, has really stepped back from that, as has Fine Gael. But that idea to be mentioned so soon is destructive in terms of that concept of shared community and consensual politics and parallel consent. So the timing, as uh, Rory really um, mentioned as well, the timing is all important of when these issues are brought to the table and how they are brought to the table and how they are managed. So my second point, apart from the hopes of returning to a better time, is that British-Irish cooperation is up to the task and that it returns to a better time, to the period we had in the 90s, where there was such a joint decision-making on the same page, joined up thinking in, in dealing with the peace process. I remember, I'm not sure Rory remember, but I remember talking to Rory, maybe in a taxi or else interviewing him for my research, and he warned me against idealising British-Irish cooperation in the 90s, that there were problems, because <laughs> I tend to have this black and white view, and I'm aware of that. But what we have seen is a, a very stark decline until recently. I think, to my knowledge, last night I happened to see Stephen Barclay speaking, um, I think on Sky News, and for the first time he referred to Northern Ireland as also a British issue, and I don't remember any British politician actually saying that in the past three years. It was always an Irish issue or the Irish border. So there seemed to be at least some awareness, not perhaps uh, organically, but because they have to, of ownership of the whole process that Britain is responsible, uh, the UK is responsible, or the government for Northern Ireland constitutionally. So the hope would be that we get back to that period because British-Irish cooperation in the issues that Rory was pointing to is central. And for example, the scenario of what if uh, the Irish government does not feel it's a good time for a referendum, but the Secretary of State thinks it is, that implies there needs to be very long-term planning 
um, very strong cooperation between the governments in timing issues correctly, in, I think, deciding on processes in a way that will not destabilise and create further division, as we saw with the Brexit referendum when it was mismanaged in the UK. So what are the conditions that led to the 90s, and can we have that again, and can we get to this point of British-Irish cooperation being stronger? Um, I suppose there are other issues, the US role, which um, you know, Jane, I think, mentioned just earlier when we were talking informally, we'd strong US involvement as well in the 90s, and of course we'd EU membership, and that both governments being in the EU was seen as quite an important backdrop factor, if not bigger. In terms of British-Irish policy itself, it was seen to be a combination of a process of close civil service cooperation, of a commitment to the central aim of ending the conflict. So there was an overarching common interest between the governments that was at the source of the cooperation that built up then through civil service uh, links and high-level, elite-level links. That sense of purpose vanished with the Brexit referendum, partly because Thankfully, and this is a positive, Northern Ireland is relatively peaceful. I know there's dissident violence, but there's far more stability than there was. Things have improved. So for the British government particularly, um, there was a sense, why bother? It's fine. There was complacency. For the Irish government to an extent as well, in that many the British-Irish governmental intergovernmental conference didn't meet after 2007. So with austerity, there were other issues. But I think that kind of common interest, that perception of a very strong common interest, has been lacking in the past three years. So that perception has to be there, that it is important, that there is a potential for instability and violence in the longer term without scaremongering, unless there is a solid um, British-Irish relationship. But we do start looking at the positives from a more solid base now. And we see, for example, the response to the Lyra McKee funeral um, when the, um, at the funeral when the... Um, priest who was um, doing the, the funeral um, service spoke out against intransigence, that there was a grand swell of support. And those moments aren't causal. I, I suppose I'm, I'm very elitist in my approach to, to how change occurs. They're not causal, but they do show this, that, that there is moderate support in Northern Ireland, that most people don't want to see violence return. And they are you know, relatively happy with the Good Friday Agreement until recent times. So that's a positive. We also see that the Irish government's lobbying, and thanks to Rory, I, I think, and many other diplomats, but Rory as, as being very much at the helm and, and in, in this process, was remarkably successful, I think, in keeping the EU behind it in prioritising Northern Ireland. And in that way, in influencing the British government not to let Northern Ireland slip off the agenda. So I think that's very positive in terms of our diplomatic force and our political influence through the EU. The negatives are, as I've said, that British-Irish cooperation was not as embedded as some people thought it was, and we've seen many examples of that in the media, negative portrayals of Leo Varadkar in the British media, stereotypes re-emerging in the Irish media as well, uh, where we see phrases like the British, for example, forgetting that so many people voted to remain in the EU. So we see all these issues, we see the need to incentivise British governments to cooperate because they are going to have a very large bargaining agenda and to prioritise Northern Ireland. So in assessing where we're going, in assessing the vision of the late 90s and whether that can occur again, that positive um, atmosphere, and looking at unification specifically, it's clear that a number of factors need to be assured before any referendum or border poll occurred. 
there needs to be very close strategic planning between British and Irish governments so that the process is managed correctly, so that sectarianism doesn't become reignited further because of it, and so that there is this community of feeling, um, which was very much in the era of international relations at the time in the 50s and 60s that John Hume developed, where people would have mutual sympathy, would feel they could live peacefully together, and this whole concept of parallel consent, all of that, all that groundwork needs to be there. We need to be assured that that's there before referendums occur, because we see, as we've said, how divisive they are. Irish unification, then, is a long-term aim or end of this process. Groundwork needs to be done. And in that sense, although I'm part of the project that was mentioned on processes to, to bring about a referendum and what are the best ways, I would be very slow to encourage bottom-up groups until there is greater assurance that that kind of community is there. Because again, when you have grassroots involvement, and we know this from peace studies, if society is divided, grassroots involvement does not solve the problem. So there needs to be leadership at elite level to ensure there is greater reconciliation occurring. And referendums then occur at the last stage, as was the case with the Good Friday Agreement. When those referendums occurred, I know there's probably more uncertainty about Northern Ireland, but there was a sense of support for the agreement that this in Ireland, that the referendum would pass, that it was less of an uncertainty. So there needs to be a high level of certainty before a referendum occurs, and it needs to always, the timing, reflect that Hume vision and Seamus Mallon of parallel consent and community among the people of the island. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming, and thank you to, to Jane and the Hub for organizing such a great event. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm hoping to build a little bit on what Rory and Attain have talked about, because my interests run toward constitutional change and design. And so when we talk about border polls, uh, I get professionally nervous, because my immediate question is, a border poll on what? And I'm going to take no specific example here, but it might be a good idea to have a vote on a vague and abstract question, let's say voting on whether or not to enter or leave a union, with no real idea about what that entails, because it will likely result in years of squabbling about what that decision really meant, and possibly ruin your domestic politics along with it. And so my question would be, what do we mean when we talk about a border poll uh, on a united Ireland? What is that entity? What are we imagining? What does it look like constitutionally? What sort of state are we thinking of? And I think that a positive of the last few years of this issue starting to be discussed uh, in this uh, uh, part of the country is that we've moved past what was perhaps uh, a flawed assumption that unity was going to be a bit like German unification, the way that West absorbed East, South absorbs North. I think that was in no way realistic, and I think it was deeply problematic thinking. And I think now we're in a position where we can at least start grappling with the realities of what unification might look like. And I think we have to do that in a spirit of imagination and a spirit of accommodation. And what I'd like to do tonight is just talk about the few of the issues I think we should think about when we think about a border poll and the possibility of unity. 
What do we actually need before we have a border poll? What do we need to have agreed on? Well, Atain's told you a lot about, uh, and Rory as well, about the practical things uh, surrounding the poll itself that we'd have to agree on. And they've both touched upon the idea that we have to have some idea of where we're going. But there's a few possibilities for what that is. Do we vote simultaneously on a new United Irish Constitution? That's one option. A second one, that we vote on making a United Ireland Constitution in the aftermath of that vote. And there's a few possibilities then for what we do with that. Do we have a citizens' assembly and sort of all-Ireland forum that will follow, or ideally precede, a border poll and come up with some sort of firm proposals? Or do we have, at the very least, a set of principles, a set of guiding lights, that whatever we end up doing with the final text of a United Ireland Constitution, at least the voters can be informed to some degree about the vector along which we wish to travel. Because without that, in many ways, the question is, is only partially meaningful. It's a vote on an aspiration, not a vote on a plan of action. And so at the very least, I think, we need a firm plan and ideally some set of core principles that will underwrite that plan. And really, ideally, we would write a new constitution first. To speak about that then, what would it mean to write a new constitution? Well, the Overadka recently pointed out that this is probably a necessity, at the very least a radical, like almost unrecognizable overhaul of the Irish constitution as it stands, but it would seem probably preferable to start from scratch. That way you start fresh politically and symbolically. You don't have the baggage of the idea of a hierarchical continuation of the present Irish state. And it could be easier in that process to consider really big changes in terms of the structure of the state, federal or confederal systems with a, a national government and regional governments, for example. But there are also complications because it's not entirely clear where the inspiration for this new constitution comes from. It can be guided by the Good Friday Agreement, but as Roy has very much pointed out and pointed out very well, the Good Friday Agreement is not a constitutional framework. It's not comprehensive. It was never designed to be a guide to creating a united Ireland in substance. It was a, a guide for obviously trying to, to advance the peace process, create successful devolution, and lead to a road that might decide the future of the island later. And so the Good Friday Agreement can't stand in as a constitution. What it can do is inspire us in terms of some of its principles. It can potentially give us some places to start, and we'll come back to that. But the problem really is that if you're writing a new constitution, you have the tyranny of the blank page. You can write down anything, but then you write down nothing. All possibilities are there. And you also have a situation where people potentially deeply disagree about what its contents should be. And in that circumstance, writing a constitution from scratch means that every symbolic or political issue that could arise does arise for negotiation and contestation and potentially gives you maximum opportunity for breakdown in consensus during that process. The third challenge is that it's slow to write a new constitution, particularly in a situation of disagreement. And the fear, perhaps, is that should border polls be seriously in prospect, it might be because of a change in circumstance that requires some expedition. And writing a new constitution in advance of a border poll might just not be realistic. So while that might be the gold standard, it might be that we have to do with something less. The third thing that I'd like to talk about is just to consider some of the principles uh, that might underwrite uh, a constitutional settlement and some of the things that we have to think about in terms of uh, specific issues that would have to be considered in, in, in even thinking out that settlement. 
What sort of principles would underwrite a constitution like that? But here's where I think the Good Friday Agreement is really useful, and Rory mentioned some of the most important ones. The principles of rigorous impartiality and parity of esteem, which guarantee in a fairly concrete way that different communities on the island will always be treated equally and fairly. It also gives us important concepts like respect for the diversity of identities and traditions uh, uh, on the island. It gives us the idea of citizenship being something that can be British or Irish or both in Northern Ireland, something that we might wish to transfer to a future United Ireland, because that is a promise that the Good Friday Agreement seems to make in perpetuity to the residents of Northern Ireland. Those are some principles that might uh, uh, underwrite uh, a new constitutional framework or the writing of a new constitutional framework. Other aspects of the Good Friday Agreement are more complicated. For example, consociationism, this idea of cross-community decision-making that underwrites the Good Friday Agreement institutions. The idea that government, the police force, the civil service should be composed of people from both communities, all communities indeed, uh, in Northern Ireland. Can you transport that into United Ireland constitution? And if so, how? That's an incredibly complicated question. And the consociational arrangements that were made in the Good Friday Agreement, again, were not designed necessarily to function in a situation of a united Ireland. So how we preserve those and to what extent and in what system is a real question, but again, an important part of, of, of the Good Friday Agreement. What other kind of flashpoints in terms of constitutional design will come up? Well, they'll range from things that seem trivial, but are in fact hugely important and usually would tend to go in a constitutional document to things that are more obviously deeply contested. The national flag would obviously be uh, a point of significant tension, one would think, given the way that flags have uh, played a prominent role in disagreements uh, in Northern Ireland. Relatedly, the national language, obviously this state has as its first official language the Irish language, and English being only a second official language either a joint parity of languages or some other arrangement that guarantees people certain linguistic rights, a situation that other countries like Canada have long grappled with. That's something that we need to think out. Something as seemingly innocuous as the location of the national government. Is it too uh, southern-centric to have a national government located in Dublin, something that's been discussed when this issue has come up in the past? Do we decamp various aspects of the government to other places in order to try and uh, have a less Dublin-centric focus? Places that are not Dublin in the south might also favor uh, such a plan, given that Dublin's not always uniformly popular, five in a row, and so on. And ultimately, do we all decamp to Athlone, right? It's lovely at this time of year, I believe. Or do we set up a kind of Irish Brasilia in the middle of the country, some kind of new political capital? These are questions that we'll actually have to think about. But perhaps most controversially of all, a head of state. Do we have a president as we would expect in a republic? How is that president elected to make sure that all voices on the island are heard? And what do we do about the monarch? Do we potentially suggest that this new state be part of the Commonwealth? Do we recognize a special position of the British monarch? As Ireland of 1937 recognized a special position of the Catholic Church? These are all questions that we'll have to grapple with. And there really are no easy answers. So to conclude, if these are hard problems, and I think they are, I think it's incumbent that we talk about them. And we talk about them essentially in the build-up to a border poll when that becomes realistic. Because this is a difficult process, and it's difficult because leaders are going to be reluctant to have formal processes considering these questions for risk of it being divisive. Unionists in Northern Ireland are going to be very reluctant to ever engage with these questions to even concede the possibility of a united Ireland in the offing. And so if we're going to talk about 
these matters, and I think we are going to have to. We have to do it in a spirit of accommodation and a spirit of imagination, because in the event that we can find a solution that works, it might be nothing like what we thought in the first place. Thank you very much. Firstly, can I say, gosh, I wish this many people came to book writings. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Um, as a Bellamina-born Protestant currently living and working in East Belfast, I have to say that the community that I mostly engage with probably wouldn't be too enthusiastic about the notion of a border poll. It's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> um, we're still trying to get our heads around the possibility of a hard border. So I'm going to focus tonight on an area that I feel a little bit more comfortable with, um, the arts and the significant societal change in post-Good Friday Northern Ireland, which the, the arts has um, played a part in. Um, I'm going to get to the border eventually, I promise. Um, but I'm a novelist, so permit me to begin with a story. And Etienne has already invoked the dream of the 90s, so I think it's fair enough to take you back to 1995. I am 15 years old. I'm beginning to take an interest in literature, cinema, and music. It is, after all, the summer of Blur versus Oasis, and Britpop is omnipresent. However, 15-year-old me is mostly shaped and defined by the conservative Presbyterian community I have grown up in. I attend church five to six times every Sunday, yes, that is possible, plus a host of midweek Bible clubs and meetings. I'm a pupil at a girls' Protestant grammar school in Ballymena. I know exactly four Catholics, and as they're the lapsed variety, products of a mixed marriage, I'm not even sure they count as properly papish. I'm spending part of my summer at a young people's Bible camp in the morns. Let me be clear, I have asked to be here. Lots of my friends are also attending. This is the only world I know after all. The Bible camp is entitled, How to Convert the Catholic Child. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> I will spend seven days learning how to refute Roman Catholic heresies and bring people around to a more Protestant way of thinking. By Protestant, I mean right. <laughs> Back in 1995, I held a number of things to be indisputably true. Catholics weren't Christians, the Pope was the Antichrist, homosexuality was sinful, and women did not belong anywhere near a pulpit or lectern. I also thought that Britpop was the pinnacle of artistic endeavour. <laughs> Fast forward 24 years, I now hold binary opposite views on all these issues and many more. Did I change my mind overnight? Of course not. I may have progressed from A to Z in my political and theological thinking, but I've moved through a heck of a lot of other letters in the process. When it comes to changing minds, the kind of political rhetoric we've grown worryingly accustomed to, where one party stands in a corner, repeatedly telling the other party they're wrong until they're worn into submission, simply doesn't work. 
Change takes time. Change is about living graciously and openly with people who think different from you. Significant change always involves listening, compromise, and more than often than not, honestly addressing the lack in your own thinking. Alicia Garza, the Black Lives Matter co-founder, writing in the wake of the 2016 presidential election states, this is a moment for all of us to remember who we were when we stepped into the movement, to remember the organizers who were patient with us, who disagreed with us and yet stayed connected, who smiled knowingly when our self-righteousness consumed us. Building a movement requires reaching out beyond the people who agree with you. It is possible through fear, coercion, or even shame to change the way people think. However, if they haven't been given the time and space to journey through this process, weighing up the implications and exploring all the arguments, they'll only be playing lip service to progressive thinking. Their new outlook won't hold when any real pressure is placed upon it. In my recent novel, The Firestarters, I explore this idea of how significant societal change within a Northern Irish context will require time and space to take root. I write, the troubles are over now. They told us so in the newspapers and on the television. We didn't believe it in the newspapers or on the television. We didn't believe it in our bones. After so many years of sitting one way, our spines had set. We will take centuries to unfold. It's not just the implications of the Good Friday Agreement which have taken some time to get used to. It's the process of changing ingrained attitudes, long-held prejudices and ideas about identity. I hold myself up as an example of someone who's been through a radical process of recalibration in the period since 1998. Primarily, I am who I am in 2019, changed in head and heart because of my ongoing engagement with the arts. The arts have played an integral part in the peace and reconciliation process in Northern Ireland, bringing communities together, allowing international artists to bring fresh perspectives into the country and creating safe, liminal spaces where Northern Ireland's traditional binary thinking is challenged and people can journey objectively through processes of change. For me, the catalyst for change has been a 20-year allegiance to the QFT cinema, where I learned more about empathy and other perspectives than anything I was taught in church or school. For others, it has been theatre, music or visual art, which encourage lateral, objective and progressive thought. The essayist Rebecca Solnit writes about how story and creative thinking helps us to change our perspectives. Metaphors are not how we define territories, but how we travel across thresholds between categories. They are bridges across categories and differences. I've been involved in community arts projects in Belfast since around 2000 and have seen firsthand the impact which the arts has had in both bringing communities together and challenging prescriptive thinking. This past spring, the Irish Writers' Centre invited me to facilitate a series of workshops with older ladies from the Falls and the Shankill. For 10 weeks, they quite literally crossed the sectarian divide, scuttling backwards and forwards across the peace lines to drink endless cups of tea, chat together, and write stories about their memories of growing up in this now infamous part of the city. Diverse stories unique to each woman emerged from these sessions. I helped one woman write a story about her beloved Orange Hall, whilst another wrote about naming her baby after the Pope. <laughs> However, when it came to crafting our final poem, the women chose to end with a resounding affirmation of their unity. 
We are stuck together and stronger for it. They claim through the process of spending significant and deeply respectful time together to have found more common ground than difference. There are similar projects taking place all across Northern Ireland, making significant and enduring impacts upon people's thinking. The current stagnation of Stormont is seriously threatening the future of this much-needed work. If we're to move forward as a group of diverse people sharing the same small piece of land, we must learn how to manage our difference respectfully. The arts provides a wonderful model for this. I'm getting to the border now. <laughs> the Good Friday Agreement ushered in a period of Northern Irish history where, for the first time in my living memory, it felt acceptable for a Northern Irish person to claim a multiplicity of identities, not necessarily contradictory. I could be British, but also an Irish writer, a Protestant who felt accepted and welcome on both sides of the border. There was a slowly blossoming culture of pluralism and liminality, where people were free to be in process when it came to both ideas of identity and the subsequent issues associated with how they approached politics and religion. I believe that Brexit threatens this freedom to construct our own complex sense of who we are and what we believe both individually and collectively. A renewed emphasis on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland scares me and I could probably say the same of premature talk of a border poll. If the border is no longer fluid, Will we lose this concept of liminal space where identity can be constructed and adapted to fit the individual? A border is essentially a line, and lines speak of sides, a return to the traditional binary thinking long associated with Northern Irish culture. I, for one, am not ready to choose a side. I had hoped, in the words of the poet Louis McNeice, to continue being various for as long as possible. I'm still making my mind up when it comes to many issues associated with being Northern Irish. Perhaps I'll always be in a state of flux. Arguably, this is what a healthy Northern Ireland looks like. We must always be learning, always adapting, and always open to addressing our own flawed thinking. We must be willing to live respectfully, generously, and let's be honest, sometimes uncomfortably with difference. Progress won't be easy or immediate, but meaningful change really is.